Kosh Orisate, which is welcome in modern Greek. Who knew? And for those of you starting the podcast anew, that will not really make any sense to you, but I am trying to use a welcome in a different language for every episode. So this week's random choice was modern Greek. Welcome to another episode of Daddy Unscripted. This is a fork in the road episode with myself and Bob Ruff. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the creator and the podcast host for Daddy Unscripted. I will tell you this is a pretty cool episode that I'm really appreciative of Bob's time and I'm really excited to put out there because this kind of circles back to why this is all happening as a podcast and how it came to be for myself as well as kind of translating that to Bob's world as a podcaster as well. So in case you didn't listen to Bob's original episode, which you really should, Go back and listen to that after this one if you are jumping straight to this one. So in this episode, Bob and I talk about all of that, how that came to be, what he is working on currently, and uh, how that kind of affects himself, affects the people that he is involved with, these cases, etc., and kind of my take on all of that as well. It's a This is a really cool episode. Uh, Like I said, I'm really excited about putting this one out there for all of you to listen to because I think it's kind of, it's podcasty in the way that Bob and uh, the other podcasts are normally going about, but it's also shedding a little bit of light on why this has even happened and what his story is that led to the Truth and Justice podcast even taking shape. So Hope you enjoy it, and here it comes. So on Undisclosed, I'm at the PCR hearing. I'm at day five of the PCR hearing right now. And then on your pod, I think I'm at maybe like episode six or something. So I'm pretty far back, and every once in a while, my brother, who is a huge fan and The days when I was like, I think I'm going to be recording with Bob Ruff. And that's why I was kind of laughing when I was saying my boss has no idea, no problem with me recording at work because I'm at his animal hospital recording in one of our exam rooms right now. (laughs) He kept coming into my office and saying, you have to tell Bob about Carrie, somebody, whatever. And I was like, I have no, I'm not where you're at. I have no idea what you're talking about. We are here again with Bob Ruff of the Truth and Justice podcast. Uh, We just finished up our daddy episode, which you should go back and listen to if you haven't after you listen to this one, because that will give you some great background and information on uh, Bob. But we are going to fork off in this episode and talk about the world of podcasts in general a little bit and what kind of led Bob to the world of serial, which is where uh, some of you may actually have uh, gotten to know Bob from as well. So uh, first, welcome, Bob. Thanks. Appreciate it. I prepped you on this a little bit, but for me, podcasts I had heard about them for for a long time, and 
it was kind of that thing that is the cliche of a lot of people still. I just thought it was guys in their mom's garages or basements <laughs> talking about Star Trek versus Star Wars or how to build a battle robot. <laughs> you know, I just thought it was just a bunch of nerd stuff or or people who were radio voice wannabes. So I, di- I didn't really ever pay any attention to them or anything like that. And then uh, when I was kind of re- looking at the daddy unscripted blog and trying to figure out how to kind of uh, make it a little bit more interesting for the general public was when I kind of opened my eyes to podcasts a little bit more. And I talked about it a little bit with my brother. And then I kind of started looking at, Hey, maybe we could do a podcast for the animal hospital, which we actually started at the same time pretty much. And uh, started uh, I'll give a little shout out to uh, Pet Talk Podcast by Alicia Pet Care Center, which um, is the doctors just kind of sitting around and talking about different issues for people regarding their pets, which you may get some information out of for your dogs, Bob. I don't know. Right. But I just kind of started looking at everything and then, of course, looked at what was popular and what was big and Serial uh, was right there at the top of the list. And I didn't really listen to it right off the bat because I was kind of thinking more of I want to hear interview type stuff and and kind of things that are more in the direction of what Daddy Unscripted would be. And so I kind of started off with Mark Marin's podcast, WTF, and uh, some of those other interview styles. And then finally, my brother pushed me and said, you've got to listen to Serial. You've got to listen to this. And so that was when I finally really latched on to podcasts. And and if you told me this uh, even two years ago, that I would be not listening to music in my car, and instead I would be listening to podcasts and these recordings of people talking, I would have laughed at you. But how how did you kind of get your start with listen, even being involved in podcasts as a listener is. I, I listen to a lot of talk radio and, uh, one of the shows that I really like to listen to was the Bob and Tom show, uh, which is, you know, out here Indianapolis, which is a couple hours away from me, but they're syndicated all over the world. And they would have a lot of comedians on. And, you know, a few years back, I started hearing all these comedians saying, you know, check out my podcast. I have a podcast. And so when I started driving a lot for work, when I took the fire chief position, uh, I was I was spending almost two hours a day in the car. So I, I originally downloaded the uh, Chick McGee's podcast uh, uh, off the air with Chick McGee because he's he's one of the co-hosts on Bob and Tom. And he kept talking about his podcast. I was like, oh, I'll listen to that. Maybe it'll be the same. And I really enjoyed it. And I liked the fact that it was. You know, it was it was on demand. I could just download it, listen to it whenever I wanted to. Didn't have to worry about the radio being fuzzy or being too far away. And uh, then I started listening to other comedians on there. And then the way I got to Serial was a weird way. I listened to Jimmy Pardo's podcast, which is my favorite podcast, mm-hmm. uh, Never Not Funny, uh, which is similar in format to uh, Mark Maron's. I've listened to his as well. And... And Jimmy 
Jimmy Pardo's podcast. He's been podcasting since like 2006. He was one of the first big podcasts. And when Serial came out, he was in a joking way complaining that everybody is saying that Serial is the you know the biggest podcast. It's the new podcast. It's the 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 first real podcast that anybody's listening to. And so he kept joking around about how you know he wasn't getting credit for being in podcasting before Serial. And mm-hmm. I just kept thinking every time they brought it up, I'm like, what the hell is Serial? Now I have no idea what this is. And so I downloaded Serial having literally zero idea what it was. I had no idea. I literally turned it on to listen to it just because I wanted to know what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. And about, I don't know, 30 seconds in, I was hooked. Mm-hmm. You know, And then so I, I listened to Serial uh, several times being uh, a fire investigator and just kind of having that kind of investigative, kind of inquisitive mindset in general. You know, I, I was insisting that I was going to be able – I was going to solve this case. You know, so I was listening to it over and over and over again and taking notes and, well, this doesn't line up and this doesn't make sense. And uh, that led me to trying to talk to my friends about it and turns out uh, none of my friends uh, cared about <laughs> what I was talking about. <laughs> and and then Undisclosed came out and within the first two episodes of Undisclosed, I was like, oh, my goodness, like my mind is just blown you know, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to talk about it, and no one wanted to talk about it. So that that's how the Serial Dynasty started. Was it was literally I made a podcast to uh, make friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was I was to find other people to talk about it with. Yeah, that's really all it was. It was it, yeah. it started off as just a fan show, and it was hey, let's you know th- email me in your thoughts and theories, and I'll talk about them on the air, and we'll all have this kind of community of just being able to talk about this case. And it just as that went on, I ended up starting to do kind of my own investigation with there were answers that undisclosed wasn't finding or wasn't talking about. Uh, I started, you know, trying to find them myself. I started calling witnesses and looking things up and pulling documents. And uh, that led into me doing a full on and crowdsourced investigation with my listeners. Uh, And then other people started sending me. Uh, emails in wanting me, hey, can you look at my brother's case? Can you look at this case? Can you look at my uncle's mm-hmm. case? Uh, and that's when I decided that you know that we're actually doing work here that that needs to be done. Nobody's advocating for these people that have been wrongfully convicted. So uh, I made the transition from the serial dynasty to truth and justice, and you know, now that's what I do. Is my I, I took an early retirement from the fire department. On January 1st of this year, and since then, my full-time job is uh, using the podcast as a medium to do a crowdsourced investigation into these, you know, potential wrongful convictions and advocating for people. And, you know, you're, you're a long ways off from it, but my current case right now, you know, we have uh, – I have three different cases that I'm working – well, two, uh, two that I'm actively working on. You know, and one of them, we just got the Innocence Project of Texas to get involved, and uh, Edward Ates is the the guy's name, and he now has an attorney, and and hopefully we're going to get his his case back into court and start litigating soon. And then on my other case, Kenny Snow, uh, also from Texas, uh, wasn't an Innocence Project type case, but uh, one of my listeners has taken on his case to be his attorney pro bono. Um, so that's the it's. It's it's rewarding work and it's it's you know it's kind of made me that what we were talking about in the last segment that 
you know, I'm excited to get up and go to work every day because we're, you know, together, not just me, but the the listeners are all working together to actually change people's lives. So when you first started recording, what else was going on at that exact time? It was undisclosed, just started. And part two of that question sort of is what other offshoots of the Adnan part of Serial was going on at that time? Well, I, I had listened to, when I finished Serial, I was looking for anything else on the case. So I was listening to the Serial Serial, Serially Obsessed, Crime Writers on Serial, uh, and then Undisclosed. So I had listened to all of those, and then Undisclosed came out a little later. You know, most of those were happening at the same time as Serial. So I'd listened to all of that back catalog, and then um, I I started listening to Undisclosed, and it was that was that was kind of my trigger. All the other podcasts had stopped making episodes about Anon's case. Uh, mm-hmm. and Undisclosed was was still going with theirs, or just starting theirs. So I, there was I want to say they were it was before episode two of Undisclosed. There was like episode one and the first addendum uh, when I recorded my first episode, and I just happened to record it right then because I, I had uh, so my my podcasting career began with a Christmas gift. Uh, my and I'm going to preface this by re- reminding you that I am indeed a grown ass man uh, <laughs> uh, for my 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 mother in law, Becky's mom still gives us Christmas gifts uh, every year. Well, she that that Christmas right before that, she couldn't figure out what to get me. So she gave me two hundred dollars for Christmas. So I got a two hundred dollar mm. check from my mother in law for Christmas. Awesome. And I had had this idea of creating a podcast uh, similarly formatted to never not funny with the guys from the firehouse. Cause you know, we have mm-hmm. coffee table talk every morning and the conversations are usually funny. And we'd always said for years we should record these. So I used my $200 Christmas prize from my mother-in-law to buy a cheap podcasting kit to start that show. So we started the off duty podcast, which I still have. It's still going today. Um, but it was because of that that on this day, it was like May 1st or somewhere around there last year, my youngest Parker was home sick. So I was sitting home with him and I was bored. He was up taking a nap. And that's when I, I mean, literally within an hour's time, got this idea. Well, you know, I got this stuff downstairs. I could go, I, I, I could make this podcast where we can all talk about the case and people can email me and I get to do this right now. So I like went on GoDaddy and made a quick website and an email address and then ran downstairs and recorded a 10 or 15 minute episode kind of Mm -hmm. launching it and published it. And within a couple of hours, well, before Parker got up from his nap, the serial dynasty podcast was born. That's so awesome that it was like that quick and the action that you took was so immediate. Yeah. And this is my full-time career now. And I tell people I'm a podcaster by accident because my kid was sick. Right, right. And the fact that the, original podcast started and was able to pave that road for you to where it wasn't a, I would really like to do this podcast, but now I have to figure out how to do it for, you know, the months of figuring all that out, getting equipment, you know, getting a website and figuring out how to do that is, is cool that you already had that road kind of paved for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, if it hadn't been for, 
the off duty podcast, I probably never, there probably would be no truth and justice because I had gone through all of that. That was something that was planned out. So I had gone through all of that for the months prior to, uh, and so all the groundwork was already laid. Yeah. So really, really quick question because I've never looked into the other ones. Did, did these other podcasts kind of reboot themselves now that undisclosed is happening, has happened, and all of the stuff has happened with the case, or are they still idled where they ended up a year ago or where, whenever? Most of them know. Um, I think Serially Obsessed did a couple of like bonus episodes when there was like big revelations in the case. They mm-hmm. would drop an episode every once in a while, but they, you know, they weren't. They were just going off of the podcast. They weren't you know, doing any research or anything themselves. Crime writers on Serial, I think, has become just crime writers on, and they have a continued podcast now. They they kept up with Serial season two, uh, and I believe they they worked on some of the the new stuff with that was found in undisclosed in my show on. Uh, the Anand Syed case, and I, I couldn't tell you about the other ones if they've done anything else. I think a lot of them were jumping into serial season two, but it wasn't. I think a lot of people had a lot of misconceptions about what serial was. Serial was not a true crime podcast, right? The, the whole idea was that it was a serialized podcast that they were going to, you know, tell a story over a series of week, one week at a time. Uh, like the old time radio shows, and it just happened to be that the first story was a true crime. So uh, I think a lot of people were turned off by season two, not because it wasn't good, but because it wasn't what they were expecting. You know, they were expecting right, more right. true crime, and that's not what it was. Yeah, and I, I definitely, when I get to a point, I think further on in what is going on currently with Adnan, I think I will go back and finally do a re-listen to serial because of that you know it's it's definitely got a different purpose and kind of reach to it i guess and i think i i don't even really realize how different it is until i go back and re-listen um but just thinking about the different episodes of uh, undisclosed or of your podcasts that are referring to things in serial and thinking, oh yeah, they kind of either barely touched on that or didn't look into that whatsoever or whatever the case may be with different, many different circumstances because it was such a non investigatorial storyline, I guess. Right. You know, and that's what really hooked me with undisclosed. It was like in their first episode, I don't want to give spoilers in case anybody hasn't listened yet, but it was like their first episode. They dropped a bomb that w- that completely undid. You know, we we thought something that had happened in a certain way because of serial, and then in the first episode, we find out nope, everything you've been basing all your assumptions on is not true. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my goodness, like how much more of this can there possibly be? Yeah, I know you talk about it even early on in your podcast about the way that you would investigate fires with the department and how your pattern to investigation kind of took you through those things. Is that still kind of your same path now? Or do you feel like doing the first part with the Adnan case has kind of 
transitioned you to a different kind of style or pattern with these other ones that you've been working on? No, it's still the same. You know, that's the scientific method of investigation when it's done properly. And people that aren't paying attention occasionally will be like, oh, you're flip-flopping, you're changing your mind. But what they don't realize is that's investigators not doing that, not being willing to admit to themselves that they were wrong the first time with new evidence is what leads to wrongful convictions. You know, for, for example, in the, the Edward H case that I'm working right now, there's been three different theories that I've come out with as far as how it happened. You know, I, I examined the evidence, developed a theory. And then, as I said, way back at the beginning, then you go back and start looking for more evidence to compare to it, to see if there are any holes in your theory. And I found that, Oh, wait, that couldn't have happened because of this. So it's back to the drawing board. So then so you you look at the evidence again, you develop a new theory, and then you go back and do it again. And it's like, mm, nope, you know, this almost works, but this little piece here kind of throws a kink into that theory. So let's scrap that and go back to the evidence again and keep developing new theories until you find the one that fits uh, all of the evidence. So do you feel like your background and your work with the fire department has opened up a lot of ability for you, not so much just with your skills that you are bringing to the table, but that it made more things possible for you to look into than, say, if you were, um, I don't know, a uh, whatever, whatever occupation, if it was if you were managing an animal hospital and you decided to do this, do you feel like there have been things that you have been able to do because of your, your tie to that field has enabled you to get into informations that you wouldn't normally be able to get into? I mean, not necessarily in an obvious way. You know, it's not that Oh, you know, here's records I'm not going to give up, but oh, you're a fireman. Okay, so I'll give them to you. That that doesn't happen. But, you know, the advantage is I have worked side by side with law enforcement for years and years. And I've worked side by side with prosecutors for years and years on arson cases and things. So I and and to be honest, I think the skill set that has helped me the most is, you know, my my other part time job was always I was a teacher. I was the director of fire science at our local college. Uh, and I was a you know a state instructor, and I think that the skills that I developed with communicating with people over years of doing that and trial and error and and making mistakes and learning from them, I think has helped more than anything else to be able to develop relationships with people and get people to trust you as I think open up more doors than than anything else mm-hmm. and because so many things have to be public record and uh, accessible to the public, et cetera. Have you had many things where you basically are just not getting through because you're being physically and actively blocked by a, a city, a county, a state, or prosecutors, or whatever it may be that they should not be doing? Or uh, do you feel like people are doing legally what they should be doing and in, in assisting. Well, I, I've, I've come across on a, a couple of different occasions where uh, uh, municipal officials have attempted to stop me from getting information that I'm legally entitled to. 
But I think that's where the power of the podcast comes in and the the movement of all these people is they can't, you know, they can't subtly, if they subtly send me a letter and say, hey, I'm not going to give you this stuff, I, I'm going to read that letter on the air to 200,000 people and those people are going to start writing them letters and start calling their office and start, you know, causing a ruckus over it. And so the really the power in what I'm doing is nothing that I'm doing. It's it's you know I'm I'm the mouthpiece for a massive movement of people uh, that want criminal justice reform and want to help these people that have been you know had their life stolen away for the, from them, and and so that is what breaks through those boundaries. You know, I had one particular instance in Smith County, Texas, where the the police chief didn't want to give me some public records and claimed that they didn't have them. And uh, because of the podcasts and, and also the resources, you know, I I know a lot more about the law now than most people do, not because I'm some intelligent person, but because I have so many listeners that if I have a question that, you know, about the law, all I have to do is ask. And somebody's there to, you know, most of my listeners are in just waiting mm-hmm. for the chance for their skill set to be necessary in the movement and what we're doing. And so there's almost not a question that I can ask that somebody in the audience has the answer to. And and that's that's what just breaks down those barriers. I mean, they it a couple of emails back and forth with the police chief and all of a sudden he miraculously found the records and had them waiting for me at the desk free of charge. I talked with uh with my brother maybe yesterday about the big picture idea of all of this. And like I said, I'm, I'm a little bit further behind, but thinking about that in the case of Adnan and now with, is it Michael Wood, uh, former Baltimore? Yeah. Michael A. Wood. Okay. With, with him and with all of these things going on that who is it that is finally going to force things into doing what they are supposed to be doing and correcting these wrongs. You know, is it going to be the state of Maryland? Is it going to be from a federal level and what roadblocks are going to continue to pop up? And uh, that was when he was kind of trying to not spoil things for me, but talking a little bit about what you're going through in Texas. And when he went, even when I heard it was Texas previously, you know, I kind of, rolled my eyes a little bit at just the thought of the cliche of them being a whole, their own country that you're basically dealing with that feels like it is going to do everything to have its own back in a way. Are you, do you feel like you're going through that? Oh, absolutely. I think the biggest problem we have in Smith County, Texas right now is current prosecutors trying to protect previous prosecutors and police officers. I mean, there's some of the cases we're working in the Carrie Max Cook case, the Edward Eights case. It's there's clear and compelling evidence that these men are innocent and that they were intentionally railroaded. But in order for the district attorney's office to, to get on board with us and help right the wrong, they basically have to admit that the, you know, the prosecutor before them, you know, was crooked or did something wrong or the police did something wrong and that's the biggest challenge is they're always you've got to get past the hurdle of them trying to you know watch their own back uh, mm-hmm. and that that's that's the biggest struggle with trying to get 
trying to get justice there is they're they're I think that if they were just looking at the case at hand, they could look at it and say, "Oh, you know what? You're right. We did make a mistake. Let's 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 fix this." But in the back of their mind, they know that by admitting that, I'm going to be throwing you know the the previous prosecutor under the bus. And you know, there's I mean, there's potential for Department of Justice getting involved uh, down there in Smith County because there's just such a, a long track record of injustice and corruption in that county. Mm-hmm. And because of that, what is the if any back fight that you are getting from the people in general? I mean, I know I know that there is obviously a, a tremendous amount of support and uh whether it's direct support or whether it's basically just kind of that, thank you for what you're doing. Is there, especially as you are going into this other country of Texas, are you having to also go through a, any level of attack from, from the people? Uh, no, actually it's been quite the opposite. Tyler, Texas, uh, which is the kind of the epicenter of Smith County, is a very, very interesting town. I mean, somebody at some point is going to make a movie about this town because it's it's a very divided town where you have two classes of people there. You have the very wealthy, rich, white people that live on one side of the tracks and destitute, very poor, underprivileged minorities on the other side. And there's really no in between. There's not much of a middle class there. And it's a town that is, you know, ruled with power. You know, I have interviews that I've done on the show from locals that have said, you know, it's well known within that city that if you if you buck against the the district attorney's office that you'll pay for it. Businesses will be shut down, you'll be arrested, you'll be you know, they they find ways to maintain control. You know, the the prosecutor's office seems to have a a clinch and control of the local media, the newspaper, the TV news there. Um, you know, they only report stuff that, that paints the district attorney's office in a good light. Uh, and so my involvement there is more locals have got involved. I, I have honestly not had any kickback on the contrary. I've had the exact opposite. I've had people sending me emails like, Oh my God, I'm from Tyler. I just found your podcast. Thank you so much. This town is, I think somebody said is run by elitist lunatics, Hmm. You know, I've had that rich white demographic take me out to dinner for or take me out to lunch for a sixty dollar steak because there's <laughs> which was you know a little odd for me, um, but you know, but they're they're on the right side of the tracks and they're disgusted with what's happening, but they're afraid to say anything. And most of the locals there are very thankful for the fact that someone is finally standing up to the the powers that be in Smith County. So I haven't really had any kickback more. So I've had a lot of support from the locals, but a lot of them are, they're still scared. I mean, I have, I'm going back to Texas uh, this weekend. I'm leaving tomorrow to do some work and uh, have to do, I'm, I'm meeting with a couple of people that, you know, have told me they have information that can help me, but they want to, you know, meet in secret and remain anonymous because they're afraid of the fallout. Uh, if the, powers that be find out that they're helping me. Mm-hmm. God, so crazy. It's, it's like a fictional movie. It, it reminds me of the movie walking tall, uh, is, is what it reminds me of, you know, the, the, the one guy that, you know, owns the casinos and owns the sheriff's department and owns the town and everybody's afraid of them. Uh, and that's great that, that they are giving you that kind of support and that they are 
excited by you doing that work and at least hopeful of what it could bring to their town and county. And I mean, obviously, from what it seems like uh, to me, you started off with this one case there and it's kind of opened into these other ones. Are Do you know where you're kind of going from here or are you is this something that you are so entrenched in that the next direction is completely unknown to you? It's starting to seem like I'm going to be in Smith County, Texas for a long time. You know, I get people that send me in new cases all the time. And I have, uh, as of now, I have four more cases that do, because a lot of people send me in cases and I look at them and now this really probably isn't a wrongful conviction. Uh, but I have four right now that look like these were innocent men who were railroaded by Smith County justice and they're all, they're all right, still right there in Tyler. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like we've got them on the ropes. It's, you know, I want to, I want to affect change in that town before I leave. And whether that means that the current district attorney's office and administration gets on board and works with us to help right some of these wrongs. I'm all for that. And if they're not going to, then I'm not going to stop until we get the department of justice in there to, to shut them down and and have somebody else do something about it. It's just, I've never seen, there is just such a, a track record and a, the local defense attorneys that have talked to me, the local residents that have all told me that it's just well known that in Smith County, if there's a felony crime, they're going to get a conviction and they're just going to go over there to the other side of the tracks. They're going to grab somebody that they can railroad. They'll use a jailhouse snitch or they'll, they'll grab somebody else that has a charge on them. And, you know, one lawyer told me that their, you know, their, their motto, their, their phrase, they always use to people to say, okay, here's the deal. You're either going to be a witness for us or you're going to be a co-defendant. Which one do you want to be? Mm-hmm. You know, basically threatening them that, you know, you're going to say that you saw that guy commit this crime. And if you don't, then we're going to make you a, a suspect. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes there are people that had literally nothing to do with the crime in general. So that's the oppression that happens there and the racism that happens there. And even the classism, you know, it doesn't even have to be black or white. It's the the poor people in Smith County. And the, the part that just, it just saddens me so much is when I talk to these people and find out that it's been going on so long that they've just come to accept it. You know, when, when I've talked to the family of the victim in one of the cases and you know, tell her, listen, I think that they may have the wrong guy. We're trying to find the right guy. And, you know, she just kind of shrugs her shoulder and says, you oh, know, that's what they do here. Mm-hmm. Like it was no surprise that they convicted the, the wrong person of the crime. You know, and where in most cases when you're dealing with family members of a victim, they're, they're really kind of standoffish to what we're doing because they feel like they've gotten justice. And then, you know, here I come saying, hey, I'm trying to get this guy out of prison and find the guy that actually did it. They're not real receptive to that. But in Smith County, it seems to be the opposite where, you know, everybody, you know, close friends of hers and, and her family, uh, her, you know, her cousin in, in particular, if all just said, hey, if they got the wrong guy, go find who did it. I mean, this is this is what they do. I don't doubt for a second that they intentionally railroaded Ed. So, I mean, when you get up in the morning and you are. Um, after you are done with your dogs and your news reports and everything, <laughs> are are you going into kind of your office or whatever it may be? And are you going through these cases and looking through all these papers? Or are you, I mean, how are you piecing together because you have what you are doing 
um, directly. And then all of this information that is coming in from listeners and from uh, the people involved in those cases directly, how, how are you organizing all of this? Um, I do a lot of, I've gotten better at that. You know, when I first started, I had papers and stuff everywhere. Now when I go get documents, you know, I use a, a, a portable scanner that's linked to my Dropbox account. So now I have all of the case documents. You know, in Edward Eight's case, is, which is my main case right now, I've got probably 4,000 pages of documents and photos. And they're all stored on my computer now rather than on my shelves. And they're just, you know, it's it's just a lot of work on the front end of making sure that I organize by folder so I can find things, you know, the trial transcripts and you know, for example, you know, a trial transcript may be 3,000 pages long uh, to go through and, and look at each individual's testimony and then break that out into, into its own file. So when I want to know what, you know, Detective Huckel said, I can just go click that PDF and look at it and read it without having to sort through 3,000 pages of trial transcripts. So it's that's that's one of the many challenges what I'm doing is making sure that I stay organized enough that I can find things quickly. Jeez, I can only imagine how difficult the task alone of keeping all of these, especially now that it is that the one case has broken out into multiple in that area to uh, be able to keep everything straight in your brain alone and being able to manage all of that at the same time as going back to, you know, you're still revisiting previous things as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when when I made the transition to truth and justice, you know, I I told my listeners that the podcast is going to become dynamic. You know, I don't, you know, I I do this for a living, so I don't have the luxury of like serial or undisclosed where they, you know, they finish a case and say, okay, we're taking six months off to gather information to do the next season. And they might have, you know, 10, 15 episodes planned out for what they're going to do it on. I, I literally come in every Monday morning having no idea what, that week's episode is going to go be about, you know, I may, I, and a lot of times I have an idea, but then as I research, I end up going a different direction. So like Monday and Tuesday all day is taking a particular subject, studying it, reading the transcripts, cross-referencing. And by Wednesday I start to develop, you know, an idea of what the episode is going to be about creating an outline. And then by Wednesday evening, the plan is that, you know, hopefully by then I have a basic outline of what I want to talk about, and then Thursdays I record and then I catch up Thursday afternoon on my business stuff. And then like today is Friday, um, you know, I come in Friday morning and it's the final edit put on the podcast to get it done. So hopefully by five o'clock Friday night, I can I can have it uploaded, ready to go and clock out for the weekend. And then Monday morning, it starts all over again. Mm-hmm. So tying back to to serial world, what is your feeling of if and when Adnan is accepting what is it's an, an Alfred plea. And, and that's when they they'll plead the, the state will offer if you plead no contest, which means you don't have to admit guilt, uh, but you're basically not arguing the the case. Then they will in turn sentence you to time served, which means, you know, you're you you're done. You go home today and this is over with. You never have to deal with it again. The only issue with that is you're you're a convicted murderer for the rest of your life. Right. Yeah. So what for you, if and when that is the next stage for him, obviously following other things that have to take place to get to that. What is your 
level of relief, satisfaction, anything from that taking place for him? You know, it 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 would be bittersweet for me, and and that's going to be have to be a decision that no one could make besides Adnan. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's I, I want to see. I, I believe one hundred percent that Adnan Syed is innocent. And I want to see him go home and I want to see him live the rest of his life as a free man. You know, he's, his enti- he spent his entire adult life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. At the same time, you know, I, I'm a big advocate for justice for the victims, too. And if an Alfred plea is issued, then that means that the case is closed. Right. You know, Baltimore PD has no obligation to investigate the case and find out who actually did it. And that's frustrating for me, too, because not only has an innocent man been in prison for all these years, but the person that murdered that, and from all accounts, just a, an amazing, sweet, energetic, intelligent young girl with her whole life ahead of her, took her life from her and then has lived his life in 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 peace and harmony for all these years and will continue to do so if an Alfred plea is issued. So that's that's my frustration. I don't, I mean, luckily that's not my decision to make, so I don't have to worry about it too much, but it, it, it will a part, it'll be bittersweet if that's what happens because you know that I, I don't want to see the killer walk free and I don't want a non to spend the rest of his life as a convicted murderer either. I don't think that's fair either. Yeah. It's, it's that, I mean, if, if, if ever there were a conundrum, that is absolutely one just thinking, like what he's having to face of the thought process of do I, how do I feel this is going to be handled? Do I want to potentially spend however long in prison trying to completely fight this so that it is opening up a new case? And, you know, is that even a a surety? Like if, if he was to not accept an Alfred, then they what? They have to go through a whole new case against him. Well, the, the state has three options right now with his conviction thrown out. They can offer the Alfred plea, or they can take him back to trial a second time. Was well, actually be a third time in his case because he had a mistrial. Uh, or they could just drop the charges, drop the indictment, and admit his actual innocence. I think that that is the least likely uh, scenario. Um, district attorney's office is, is around the country rarely will do that because, again, that means they're having to admit that they unconstitutionally incarcerated a person for, you know, in his case, almost 17 years for something that he didn't do. And they don't like to admit that. So uh, I think we'll either see an Alfred plea or in his case, I just I just can't see them taking him back to trial again. I mean, it would be, it would be a debacle for them. I mean, they don't through the work of undisclosed, they now don't have the cell phone records to work with anymore. Yeah. Jay Wilde's testimony has been, has been picked apart and he's given more statements since serial. Uh, and so he now has, I think we're up to like eight or nine different versions of his story. His testimony is not going to work. It now has an amazing group of attorneys working for him now that will just destroy them if they go to court again, mm-hmm. if they go to trial again. But you never know that, you know, it's, it's, there's still that, you know, you want to say, you know, if they offer the Alfred plea, tell them, you know, tell them to shove it, take me to trial. Yeah. And we'll win. But at the same time, you know, what I, what I've learned over these past year and a half since I've been working on these, these wrongful conviction cases is that, 
uh, juries are fallible. You know, they they make mistakes. These are 12 people that, mm-hmm. you know, don't always get it wrong. And in fact, oftentimes do get it wrong. And there's always that chance that an innocent person goes to prison. You know, in, in Edward Eight's case in Smith County right now, it's as I look through the evidence, it's just – I mean, this is a man that got, was convicted of murder who, uh, on the crime scene, they found 200 hairs on the crime scene. None of them belonged to him. There was a semen stain found on the comforter. The victim was found nude. Uh, that was a blood type that didn't match his. Not a single fingerprint of his on the scene. Literally not one single piece of physical evidence tying him to that scene, and yet he was still convicted and he's to life in prison. He spent the last 18 years in prison since then. Wow. So you just never know. You you can never count on a jury always getting it right. All it takes is, you know, a trial is an adversarial situation. Once the trial starts, you know, the the truth doesn't really matter. You have a prosecutor that's fighting to win his case and a defense attorney that's fighting to win theirs. And oftentimes it's just whoever does a better job is going to win the case, regardless of who's actually innocent or guilty. Right. Scary. I mean, to think especially like as you're talking about these people in Smith County that, you know, it's not even just keep your nose clean and don't be involved with the wrong people. If it's something that you can't, you can't even avoid by that or by, you know, whatever class you may have been born into or whatever. I mean, God help us all. If that were the situation nationwide in all counties. I mean, it would be, I just can't even imagine. And, and to be honest, it, it, it is, it, it's, it's much worse. I think in Smith County than other areas. But when you look at wrongful conviction cases throughout the country, I mean, most of the time you're dealing with someone that does not have the resources to put up a really good fight. And you have, you know, in, in Smith County's case, you happen to have, you know, at that time. And I think even now you have a, a very skilled, Attorney as the prosecutor, you know, was a guy named David Dobbs when uh, Edward Ates was going through his trial. The Matt Bingham is the district attorney there now. You know, when I'm reading the trial transcripts, it's it's from back then, and you know, his trial was in 1998. It's like, damn, you know, he was Dobbs was good. I mean, he was he manipulated that jury into. I mean, imagine the ability to manipulate a jury into convicting a person when you have, don't have literally one single shred of evidence that he did it. Right. And he still was able to do that. I mean, he's the guy's got skills. You know, and, and, and you look at the you know the defense side, he's got, you know, public defenders, which, you know, I have no beef with public defenders and no disrespect to public defenders. Some of them are the best attorneys in the country. But the bottom line is public defenders typically have, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 cases they're working at a time. And, you know, they're always under-resourced. The, you know, they they don't have the ability to go bring in expert witnesses because those cost money. And so they have to ask, they literally have to ask the court who employs the prosecutors for money for them to be able to hire an expert witness, which oftentimes gets denied. You know, it was denied in, in Ed's case as well. So, the, you know, you have the the state with unlimited resources and then you got defendants, the, the underclassed, uh, defendants that are, you know have a public defender that has a massive caseload. They don't have the resources. They can't get expert witnesses, and it leads to a lot of wrongful convictions. <laughs> so crazy. So I'm going to ask you the the blatant person who is involved in the different media's because this is all podcast driven. Did you watch Making a Murderer? I did. 
And what what were your thoughts on on that? Uh, when I watched it, I was disgusted and wanted to throw my TV out the window uh, because of the gross <laughs> misconduct in that case and thought for sure that they had railroaded an innocent man uh, in a very, very obvious way. Uh, since then, I have looked more into the case, and uh, it, it seems that that show was very – it was presented in a very one-sided way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were things intentionally left out um, and things presented in a way to make it look the way that I was reading it. And mm-hmm. I'm not so sure. I mean, there there ab- absolutely was some gross misconduct there. You know, there was I, – I think that that key that they found in his bedroom was absolutely planted. Uh, I think that they found the car probably the night before they, quote, found the car. Um and I think that it was, you know, done. Ill- they were doing an illegal search, found it, and then had to come up with a plan the next day how they could legally find it. But at the same time, I think that the evidence, uh, from what I've seen, and I haven't dug really deeply into this case, and a lot of people may disagree with me, and they may be right, but from what I've seen, I think it's probably very likely that Stephen Avery did commit that murder, mm-hmm. but he probably still will get a new trial and he deserves a new trial because they broke the rules. They cheated and broke the rules in order to try to bolster their case and, and convict him. And, and you can't do that. And so I think that he's, he's, yeah. he's most likely going to get a new trial and he deserves it. Whether he's innocent or guilty, I don't know. I tend to lean towards, he probably did do it and shame on the, uh, Manitowoc County, uh, police department or sheriff's department and district attorney's office for, uh, you know, breaking the rules and and you know having this end justifies the means mentality because if he is indeed guilty, if he indeed did do this, you know he'll probably walk free because of their corruption. Yeah, that's the scary. I mean, that's the other side of so many of these things, and and I've heard it bantered about in different uh, podcasts. Of there's a second side to this where these wrongdoings or these corruptions, you know, that even, even in the Adnan case is, is leading to the potential that there is a a killer that is out there that has been living their life, uh, carefree. Well, not entirely carefree, I would hope, but, you know, outside of prison for all this time, but there are also people who, I mean, look at the, OJ case, which I hate to say, you know, there's just like you said, like it's in the hands of a jury who are human and they can be led in whatever direction they can feel whatever, whatever feeling they are uh, going through during a long trial that is presented by other humans who may be doing a fantastic job or a horrible job much like christina is it not right but that's the thing is that's it's another piece of evidence i guess that supports the theory of the how you know financial classism kind of dictates the system Mm -hmm. you know you have because the the oj simpson case in my opinion is the exact contrast to the edward h case that i'm working you know, I have a guy that's got sentenced to life in prison without a single scrap. Of, they didn't even claim they had a scrap of physical evidence uh, tying him to it because there was nothing there. Well, you know, expert witness after expert witness from the state side came up and said, "Okay, you had thirteen fingerprints. Did any of them match Edward Eight's? No. 
You had semen on the bed. Did that match Edward Eight? No. You had 200 hairs. Did that match Edward Eight? No. Nothing matched Edward Eight. And he got convicted and sentenced to life. Poor guy with public defenders. Then you have O.J. Simpson, mm-hmm. who there was in a massive extreme, more so than I've seen in any other case, amount of physical evidence that showed that he's the one that committed that crime. But he is, you know, a multimillionaire that was able to afford the best attorneys in the country to represent him. And he walks free. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the two are the exact contrast. You know, the one should have been convicted and the other not. And it flipped the script the other way. Guys like Robert Durst, same thing. You know, he, you know, he, he killed a man mm-hmm. and chopped his body up, put it in a bag and threw it in the lake. It, it admitted that in trial and yet still walked away acquitted. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how does that happen? But he's a, you know, a billionaire, you know, real estate tycoon. Yeah. So. I, I know they're, they recently announced that they're doing a second season of Making a Murderer, which I assume is on that same case. So it'll be interesting to see if they are doing that because they already know that something is coming up with a new trial or something. I don't know. But something that is current, which, again, I don't know if you uh, have watched at all or anything, but and I'm not sponsored by HBO, though you guys can sponsor this podcast if you would like to. <laughs> Have you any connection to The Night Of? I do not, and that is on my list of things. I've had people tweeting at me and emailing me and uh, telling me constantly that I need to check this show out. And I, I have not seen any episodes of it yet, but I, I heard that it is very, very well done and that it is a, it, it's another sounds like wrongful conviction case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's one that I would definitely want to check out, but I haven't seen it yet. No, it has a little bit of, um, I don't know, some, some linear aspects to Adnan Adnan's case in some ways. It is, I mean, you'll have to see it, but it is a Muslim youth who is accused of, um, I mean, it's not anybody he was tied to in any way. It's kind of a random girl that he meets extremely randomly that night. And I don't know how it all uh, pans out because it's kind of midway through, it seems right now. But uh, it is very interesting having done all this stuff with, Adnan's case and then watching this it is difficult to not think about him and to not think about uh, a lot of it currently where it as where it is in the show right now is showing him in prison and what he is having to go through there and so it it has made me as an individual think a lot more about that aspect of Adnan's life I mean you're it's it kind of is easy to say, quote unquote, uh, that he has been in prison for 17 years of his life and that he has been there from, you know, age 17 or 18 to 33 now. But when you think about that and you think about how many days that is and what that equates to, and, you know, I still go back to that fact of that he was and should not have been even tried as an adult just that one little thing you know how different some of those things could have been for him and the fact that he was tried as an adult and i mean i've never been to prison and obviously i'm part of the normal culture and so and society and so a lot of my prison thoughts are based on film and television and some of those are based on 
you know, some of those quote unquote real shows that are on, I don't know, Bravo or whatever channels that do the shows on the men that are in prison. And I just, I, that part of me just feels horrible for these people who are spending so much time in prison, regardless of what age they are at in their life. The fact that that is what their day to day is of trying to navigate life behind bars with the other people that they are with there, the other um, emphasis and bold font on the word people, all of these people that are in prison and that they should be out like enjoying a milkshake, you know, on a Saturday afternoon and, you know, seeing the, previews for the new star Wars movies or whatever it may be. These things that are so simple to us, um, even, you know, uh, God save them uh, playing Pokemon go and walking around and looking for things on their phone. I mean, it's just so sad to me that, that all of this leads to that kind of a life for these people. And it just, I just can't fathom it. I agree. And that, I think that's what, one of the big positive effects of this day and age we're in now with uh, all the podcasts and the TV shows and everything, uh, looking at all these old wrongful conviction cases is it's finally humanizing, uh, these people that are in prison wrongfully or, or if they were, you know, correctly, uh, convicted and realize that it's not just a number and, and we get to know these human beings, and it's, I mean, I, I find myself, the, the emotional uh, levels that I get to in the in the current cases that I'm working is, I never saw this coming. I mean, I get angry. I mean, I mean, legitimately angry when I'm reading trial transcripts and looking at how, like, Edward H. was convicted. Because this is, a, I talk to Ed on the phone at least twice a week. I'm going to visit him this weekend. Uh, down in Texas, and you get to know these people, and you know, I'm I talk to his wife and his kids all the time, and it's just when you realize that he's not just a number, that this is a this is a human being, this is a, a man with a family, and and then then you start looking at how they ended up where they are, and it's just it's it's hard not to just get just completely livid, angry all the time because you know this is a guy that. You know, I, I, he's, he's become a friend. You know, I wouldn't half the time when we talk, we're not even talking about his case. We're just, we're just catching up, you know, how's things going? What's up with, you know, in the, in the prison, you know, Ed's a cook at the, it's funny cause it's very similar to Ed, Adnan, you know, he's a cook at the, at the prison and in his life there. And, you know, guys like Carrie Max cook who, uh, spent 20 years on death row. Uh, he was tried four times. Uh, and the state still screams, still fighting for his actual innocence now, forty years later. And then, you know, reading his book and talking to him about what he went through when he was in prison on death row. I mean, it was it, what you see in the movies is not far from accurate. I mean, he was he was beaten and raped and abused daily for twenty years on death row, and he didn't do anything wrong. And that's the it's just it's it's heartbreaking. It really like. That is, first of all, we need to we need to be treating our prisoners more humanely anyway, whether they did something wrong or not. They're still human beings, and it's it's yeah. it's horrible to me that our criminal justice system allows 
the kind of abuse to happen that goes on in our prisons because we act like they're not humans. Mm -hmm. But then when you add to that, that the person's in there going through that for nothing, they did not, you know, Carrie Mac Cook did nothing wrong. He just had a, a normal night hanging out with his buddy. And the next thing he knows, he's, he's being beaten and raped and abused in prison for 20 years. And he got off on an Alfred plea and he's been, he's been out for uh, 20, 20 years now but is, you know, trying to find a job and, you know, people don't want their kids to play with his son because, you know, dad's a convicted murderer. Yeah. Uh, it's, and again, for just, for something that he didn't do, it's just, it's just gut wrenching. But the, you know, the, all the podcasts and the TV shows and all those things that are out right now, I think at least they're helping to humanize these people so that, you know, the general public realizes that they're not just numbers. This could be you. It could be any one of you. You know, Edward Eights uh, went down to his neighbor's house and talked to her about painting his house, went and had a cigarette with his brother and went to his girlfriend's house one night. And the next thing you know, he's spending the rest of his life in prison. Insane. It, 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 the culmination of, of when this is all taking place, too, is, is very interesting. You know, it's obviously on a, on a much bigger scale, it is currently a very interesting time for our country as we are on the brink of a, you know, an election that is going to change our country in one way or another and already is. And there's so much turmoil and strife and everything is public and everything is periscoped, Facebook live, Snapchatted, Instagrammed, whatever, like ev Twittered, everything is everywhere is you know coming out and is of public knowledge and uh there's so much of it that is creating and because of i guess anger that is kind of generating this different kind of emotion within the country it feels like and then you know there is that little bit that little voice that reminds us how important it kindness is and how important love for your fellow human if, if nothing else is and i think that that is even though it may not be a you know you bob ruff are not walking around in a t-shirt that says let's all just get along or let's all love one another or free hugs or anything like that. But at the base of everything, it is the care for other people and for other humans that is driving this for you. That is, you know, that is part of the structure of all of what you are doing. And I think that that is, that is important. And that is something that, I think gets lost a little bit because because of the fact that you are having to go at this, you know, you're having to go at this kind of at like a, what is the, what is that former wrestler, the junkyard dog? Like you're having to go at it with this tenacity, but the tenacity is not stemming just from an anger of what is going on in the system. And what is happening, it is also because you are 
caring for these people and for what has happened to them, not only the people who are in prison now wrongfully, but as well as um, there's always that second sentence, I'll tie it back to Adnan, that what about Haman Lee? I mean, she is this victim of this horrible crime. And what about her justice and her family? And it is the care for those people that is at the bottom line of all of this. And if it wasn't, it would just be a storming of the, I guess, of the groups or whatever, that would be a much different feel. Uh, But there is that little voice. And I think tying it back to daddy unscripted is something that we can easily get reminded of when we come back home from our jobs or when we go to bed at night and give our kids a hug and a kiss and tell them that we love them and remember that they are these little beings that we have created that um, can completely gut us in a second in a good or bad way by telling us that they love us or by telling us something mean and completely destroy us from the top down. But it is that caring and love for humans. Gosh, this is, I did not expect to take it into this group hug kind of situation, but I'm just kind of rolling with it. Um, that I definitely am appreciative that you are doing this work, that all these people are doing this work. And I know that not everybody may be going at it with that conscious thought, but really it is it is important that we hold on to that part of it and that we are remembering to go out with care and love for our fellow mankind that will potentially make some of this better and hopefully be able to come out of some of the rubble of all of this when it's all said and done. Well, yeah, I think that's, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's part of what made me want to do this as my career is the sense of love and community uh, within the, you know, what's been coined the truth and justice army, you know, the, the group of listeners that are are helping to crowdsource these investigations is, you know, I, I believe that most people in this world want to do good and want to do something to make a difference. And they felt for a long time that, you know, I'm just one person. What do I matter? There's nothing I can do. And that's what the Truth and Justice podcast does. That's what I want the Truth and Justice podcast to do, I guess I should say, is to be that opportunity for people to say, here's a place where you are not just one voice. Your voice matters, and it adds to the movement of tens of thousands of people where together we can do good. And we have, you know, I have people listening from, I think it's like 94 different countries, you know, every state in the United States. There's, you know, every race you can think of, every religion you can think of, every, you know, or people with, with, with a, without any particularly organized religion that we can all come together and just and just love each other as human beings and and join together and fight for uh, for humans regardless of race creed color religion class any of that stuff uh, that's been that that's been the most moving part of of this whole process for me and there is definitely something to that and I think you know the community 
is, is so important and communion with other people is, you know, going back to the first days of being on the planet is, is what we are kind of all about and what uh, enables one, as I say to many people, to kind of refill our cups and allow us to give to other people is the reception into our own being that we get from others. And so I'm sure that has been very helpful. You know, it it's at the base of everything. It is what so much of this, it is why social media it even works. You know, if, if my space had happened and it had really been just one person's my space, like it would have failed in a second and nobody would have launched Facebook. You know, there would be no, none of this social media and none of this togetherness. If we were not joining with one another, if we were not clicking like on whatever thing or giving somebody a thumbs up for something. And, um, so I, I embrace that. I think it's um, a very, it can be a very good tool. It can be used for bad things, obviously, and it can be negative, but there is definitely something to embracing the community, uh, whether it is local or global or whatever. So I'm glad that that has happened with this for you and enabled it to become something that wasn't just a podcast that you were doing for. 10 episodes or even five episodes and saying, well, there's like 10 people listening and, and four of them have my same last name. (laughs) And so I'm done. You know, it's something that, uh, obviously has spread out for a number of reasons. So I'm glad that that's happened for you. Well, thanks. That's, you know, I, I feel incredibly blessed that it has gone this way. Yeah. So, all right. Well, again, thank you so much for all of your time this morning. I I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope a lot of people have gotten good things out of these conversations. I know I have. And again, I'll give you an opportunity to put out your social media places that people can find you. Sure. Yeah, you can. uh, I do have a Facebook page for Truth and Justice, which you can find. But just fair warning, I don't I don't particularly care that much for Facebook, so I kind of forget to go there sometimes. I it usually, if you if you really want to stay in co- contact with me, the best way to do it is on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at Truth Justice Pod, and I'm active on there every day. And uh, you can find the podcast just like you found this one potentially uh, right there in your podcast app or on iTunes. Um, find it and go all the way back and uh, you'll be able to start the journey uh, that Bob took and really get something out of that. I guarantee it. So thanks again, Bob. No, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. We will uh, close this one out then. Okay. Thanks. It was great talking to you. All right. And that is the end of our Fork in the Road episode. Again, I, I thanked Bob Overly at the end of that as well, and probably will send him a few other thank yous for taking time out of his day, so much time out of his uh, day and his work to be able to sit down and record with me. I really was very appreciative and very appreciative of that time and being able to record with him. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that as well. 
Uh, I hope that you got some good information and background for those of you who may already be Bob Ruff listeners, followers, supporters, uh, even for those of you who may be detractors and not followers of Bob. I hope that you did get some good information out of that and got to get a good picture of Bob and why he is doing what he is doing. And I know that I kind of uh, group hugged that whole thing at the end and kind of brought it into a, I don't know, I, I don't sleep with crystals or anything like that. I swear I, I am kind of a hippie at heart um, or kind of a hippie, I, I guess I should say. So I am big on the idea of uh, people being loving towards one another, etc., so I guess that's part of why I brought that in. But I, I really do believe that. I, I 100% feel that that is at the heart of that. And I guess there is the side of me that knows that there are trolls out there and that it is easy to kind of take that mentality. And uh, I just wanted to kind of uplift Bob and his movement uh, by saying that about it. And that I do recognize that there is that aspect to this as well and as well as I guess I'm kind of feeling that way because that's kind of the drive behind why my podcast exists and the mentality of it and I know it's you know I'm sitting with other dads and talking with them and joking around with them about whatever or you know I I get to sit and talk with these guys and you know a handful of them have been my personal friends and so that's fun for me and everything. But there is a reason that it is a podcast and not just me sitting down with these guys and sharing a, a, a beverage of whatever sort and having this conversation. There is the desire for it to be out there for the public to potentially get something out of it, whether it is, oh, I never thought of that angle of being a dad or, well, that's a fresh take on this or that. But also to, you know, hopefully spread some joy and uh, love and happiness to people out there that I may never meet in my life, may never talk to, or people that I do know or know me, but I never get to personally talk to because in the world of social media, it also, I do see the side of it that also has a little bit to some extent separated people as well. So uh, this is me taking the time to reach out to some of those people, if not in a completely direct way, uh, maybe for us to connect in that way as well. And maybe then they will send me an email and we'll get to talk or whatever. So again, that part of it is huge for me. I love hearing from you guys. Um, I love getting your feedback. So if you are subscribed already on iTunes, thank you. If you are not, please subscribe. You can also leave a review and tell me what you think of the podcast so other people can see it as well and hopefully become listeners. Uh, I am really trying to branch out and get some uh, new and bigger well-known guests on here as well as still peppering in the average Joe guy like me uh, that people may not know and be able to get all kinds of walks of life in here. I've got some other big guests coming up that I'm really, really excited about, as well as 
that same level of uh, having Bob in for me. So uh, I do want to kind of still continue to hit all corners. I'm not just completely spotlight focused on having Matt Damon on this podcast. It would be great. And I'm going to change that word. It will be great when I have Matt Damon on this podcast. But I am looking for other dads as well that have cool experiences that want to sit down and talk about them and share them with me and everybody. So you can give that information to me through either Twitter or Facebook. We're on Daddy Unscripted on both of those. You can send me an email at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. You can also find the website that has all of the episodes and has some of those older blog posts before it was even a podcast, and that's daddyunscripted.com. Also, it behooves me to mention Humphreys McGee, who have created a new partnership with the podcast to allow us to have their music as a part of the podcast. So I'm very excited to feature their music as well as that of Roman Bell at romanbell.com. Thank you, Holly. And you can find Umphreys McGee at umphreysmcgee.com. Let's see, they've got a bunch of concerts coming up still to finish out the year. They just announced their New Year's run back in Chicago. They have a new album coming out in November that will be their first mashup studio album called Zonky. So make sure you check out Umphreys McGee. So I would love to hear from you guys. Thanks again for all of your support and for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you keep listening out for whatever will be the next episode of Daddy Unscripted. Thanks. Thanks.